Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hi, this is Perry Marshall. I'm here with Bill Cole. And Bill is a man of many interests. Um, he's a businessman, an entrepreneur, a very heavy science aficionado, and he's a friend of Michael Behe. And uh, Behe wrote a brand new book called Darwin Evolves, which we're going to talk about today. And I reached out to Bill because I thought the book was very provocative. There were things I agreed with. There were things I disagreed with. And I said, Bill, what would you think about doing a conversation and recording it because I know that you know Michael and you said, hey, that sounds great. So, Bill, why don't you introduce yourself a little more and then explain your connection to Michael? Okay. Um, Perry, you did a pretty good job there. I'm, uh, yes, I am a businessman and I got into this debate about four years ago when I, in very much the same way you did, when I discovered a problem with the theory of evolution, basically the neo-Darwinian explanation, that was pretty severe and, and it caught my interest as this theory was believed by almost everybody. That morphed into a paper I wrote, a friends and family paper, that ended up getting in the hands of a fairly well-known cancer research scientist and uh, that relationship commenced about four years ago. It got me to write a first paper, which essentially showed the problems with the prokaryotic to eukaryotic transition and the probabilistic problems in that transition with such large macro machines like the spliceosome and the uh, nuclear pore complex and showing that, it, that even with the most conservative estimates of prevalence of functioning protein space that the neo-Darwinian mechanism would have grave difficulty trying to build those machines. That also ended up morphing into me doing some biochemical research that lasted several years and over 300 papers to show how low levels, blood levels of vitamin D were creating cancer risk in the population. And that morphed into another friends and family paper and probably eventually will uh, will morph into a, a full-blown scientific paper in the next few years. Um, and so that's my background. In, in attempting to get a partner for research, I started blogging. And that's where I ran into you. That's where I ran into several other people. Thus, I met Michael Behe on a video conference, very much like this video conference. We hit it off really well. And uh, I've met him in person since then, and we regularly communicate our ideas with each other. And he's actually, um, I've, I've actually been somebody who's blogged for him because he does not like to get on the blogs, whereas, you know, there's lots of insults and, and right. uh, ad hominem attacks and things like that. So, but he has 
work through me, uh, has done research for me. And actually, in one case, that research that he did will actually be applicable to your work you've done in uh, the natural genetic engineering area, James Shapiro. So I hope that introduction works. That's great. And and um, did you have a prior opinion or impression about evolution before you got into all of this? No, it was very much like you. It was a theory I simply accepted. And I think the thing that piqued my interest is almost everybody accepts it. And when you find major problems, that's a big whoa, you know. Yeah. And, and this is very much how uh, how you got into it. And and I think you and I, were, we have a debate here, but I think we probably have 98% commonality of how, how we think about things. So it will be interest, interesting discussing some of the things we disagree with, and maybe we will close on that commonality today. Who knows? Well, there's a fairly famous two-part debate between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris where they start their conversations by describing the other one's point of view as charitably as they can um, so that they can establish some level of common understanding. So how about we do that? And why don't I take a shot at, at summarizing what Behe is trying to say here? And then you can respond to that. So, so what Behe says here is, hey, I grew up a Catholic. Catholics didn't have any problem with evolution, not like some of the Protestants do. I was totally into that. It was fine. Frankly, I didn't question it all that much. Then I got into biochemistry and I was doing that and that was fine too. Occasionally like little uh, glitches in the matrix would surface like having a conversation with one of his colleagues in the lab and they kind of bumped into some questions they had no idea how to solve, but they kind of shrugged them off. Then he read, I think a Michael Denton book and it was like, hey, wait a minute, there's big problems here. And then Michael started doing research and it, it made him angry. He was like, wow, you know, it's not like my professors are bad people or anything. And it's not like there's some kind of conspiracy. They're just, you know, repeating what they've been told. But man, like this dog doesn't really hunt, right? And then this got him in, into being a member of the intelligent design movement and writing Darwin's Black Box. Well, that was 20 years ago, more than. And so, you know, he kind of figured he'd, he's done writing books like that. But lo and behold, like the thing just kept going and going and going. And so what he says in this book is, first, the title Darwin Devolves says that the traditional neo-Darwinian mechanisms as used to explain evolution actually only get you backwards evolution, like slow deterioration and degradation. They don't produce the marvelous levels of order that they're claimed to produce. Furthermore, random mutations are extremely problematic. And that's the biggest beef that most dissenters have. Furthermore, he notes that there are quite a few dissenters from neo-Darwinism across all kinds of religious and non-religious points of view. There's atheists that have serious problems with neo-Darwinism. And that uh, 
you know, many of the like extended synthesis people and um, third way kind of people, they get accused of, you know, having a secret liaison with intelligent design. Let's see, another, another point he makes is that people claim to have solved the irreducible complexity problem that he describes in Darwin's Black Box, but he says, in actual fact, they have not. And he goes into extensive discussion about that. He says that the extended synthesis guys, like the kind of the new guard of evolution, who dissent from neo-Darwinism, he says they still haven't really explained all this stuff. And they especially haven't explained where it all came from. And by the end of the book, he says, look, this still had to come from somewhere. And it still shows every sign of intelligent design. Therefore, it's intelligently designed. And we actually know this better than, than William Paley ever knew it because we have about 10,000 times more information than, than Paley had. And so, hey, everybody, nobody solved this. So just telling you that's the score. And that's kind of how he ends the book. And in the middle, he just he talks about all kinds of very specific mechanisms and experiments. And he says, look, you know, they tell you they've solved it. But if you look really close at the data, their data actually supports my hypothesis, not their own. That is my take on this book. And now I have disagreements, but I'll get to those later. But this is what I think he's saying. So okay, give me a so I, I think, uh, again, you're at least 95% accurate in, in your interpretation. I would say that uh, as far as the irreducible complexity goes, no, that has not been solved, even close to being solved. It's mostly being solved with straw man arguments, which mm -hmm. is they'll change the argument. Uh, wh what happens is, and it's that started with Ken Miller, he would change the argument, which he would say, and where B, he's a very careful scientist, he will say, as an empirical scientist, you can't really prove a negative. And he will be very careful not to set himself up that way. But the, the people who've tried to defeat irreducible complexity have had to use straw man arguments to do it. And the fact is that they will do two things. One, they will downplay what is irreducibly complex to something that has two or three parts versus a bacterial flagellum that has 40 parts. And they'll also say that Behe claims that this cannot evolve and he doesn't make that claim. The claim he makes is it's a difficult challenge for the Darwinian mechanism. So just to clarify that point, I think, I don't think we disagree there. I'm just clarifying how the opponents have more detail of how the opponents have attacked the argument. The real problem I see, and I think you see, we have commonality here, is that a flagellum has about 100,000 or more nucleotides to build it. And that's four to the 100,000th power of possible combinations. <laughs> and that's the real challenge. And, and how many combinations could really build a flagellum? Well, it's most likely well below four to the 100,000th power. And so yeah. that's, that's the real problem, you know, when we get back to the DNA. Now, what, what Behe will describe it is he attacks Darwin's gradualism by irreducible complexity saying it's a structure that you don't get function till all the parts are working together. And in order to get advantage, which is key to Darwin's theory, is you need the structure fully operational. 
And in the case of the flagellum, it's mobility. So that's a very important feature of bacteria. As far as the other thing, just to clarify here, is the design argument. It's not necessarily an argument from nobody else can do it so designed. And I was in that place four years ago, exactly where you are, but I see some positivism to the argument, which is number one, and I think you, you've outlined this argument. I, I watched your Penn State lecture and saw you make this argument which is the only known cause of a sequence or functional information, genetic information that we know of is a mind, right? We know minds can create information. Now you have your prize, which is your $5 million prize, which is I'm going to see if nature can create a communication system. But so far, the only known mechanism we know for creating functional information is a mind. Now, yep. that's part of in Behe's book, but that's more Steve Meyer and Doug Axe's argument. But Behe's argument is also what we see or observe a purposeful arrangement of parts that also indicates the existence that a mind was behind it. So this is the positive argument of design. The, the, the discussion you and I had four years ago up in Seattle, a long discussion we had, I agree with, and I think Behe certainly agrees with this, that the design argument, its biggest problem is it's limited. Once you say it's designed, what do you do next? Mm -hmm. That's the biggest limitation of the design argument. But, and, and that's been my um, resistance to it. But now I say, okay, let's make an empirical observation. Let's make an empirical assessment. At this point, the only known mechanism for functional information is a mind. And so empirically, it's the best argument we have today. It doesn't mean that we don't do what you're doing, which is try and see if there's something between the design argument and the actual thing we're observing. I think Ken Miller's best argument is that the design argument's a science stopper, but I, I would argue back with Ken to say it's only a science stopper if we make it a science stopper. I think it's a valid empirical observation. That's my current, that's my current uh, thinking. Okay. Well, so would it be a good time to get into the specific points of disagreement? Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to show my screen and share an illustration I made. Are you able to see this? Yes, I'm able to see it. All right. So, I've made four little diagrams to analogize what the different camps are saying about evolution. And so this depicts creationism and the sun up in the sky, that's design or designer. Um, the earth is nature and you're driving your car on the earth. And basically it's, the message is you cannot get there from here. You know, various giraffes or zebras or apes or humans, they were all acts of special creation. There is no macroevolution. There is only microevolution. And this kind of depicts how everything is positioned together. Now, what Darwinism says is there is no sun. There's only clouds. And the earth makes its own light and like, that's it. 
Like there is nothing on the outside. Okay. It's all darkness out there. There is no creator. There is no designer. There is no design and natural processes make all this stuff end of story. Okay. And then what, what anybody who disagrees says is, Hey, wait a minute. Like you haven't explained where the light comes from. Right. And to put a finer point on it, you know, Darwin believed in a creator he wasn't sure what kind of creator he, he believed in, but when he talks about the first cells, he talks about, you know, some divine being breathing life into him or, you know, something like that. And the, the rest all, you know, took care of itself um, through his process. But the typical atheist position is, hey, you know, it's all self-contained and there is nothing on the outside. Okay. Now, Here's how intelligent design in my perception usually seems to work is yes, there is a source of light. There's a sun and it's way out there on the horizon. So I've put it like it's straight to the West, if you will, or I guess the way I drew it, maybe it's straight to the East, right? Now let's say it's West because so now it's like we're driving our car and we can drive towards the horizon and we can get a little closer to it, but we're never ever going to get there through purely natural means. Okay. And it's different than creationism because there's kind of this unspecified degree of evolution that in the intelligent design camp, there's, all kinds of opinions about. Okay. So it's a pretty big tent. Now here's how I would depict evolution 2.0. Evolution 2.0 is kind of like that, but you don't know how big the earth is. And what we do know is you can drive and drive and drive and you can get closer to the sun and the more miles you cover, the more scientific discoveries you uncover. And there is light out at an endpoint somewhere, but it's unclear whether that light exists in the realm of the earth or whether it's a hundred million miles away, but it's also unclear how big the earth is. You know, maybe the earth has a, circumference of 25,000 miles, but maybe it's 25 million miles and you just don't know. And the metaphor being, we don't know how deep nature's toolbox actually goes. Okay. But I would say what we do know is that all life forms are intelligent. And what we don't know is where the intelligence originally comes from or how deep it goes. And, and I would contend that this picture and this picture are actually very, very different from each other. And if you have a circle with an infinite radius, the circle almost becomes a straight line. And to keep with the analogy here, I am suggesting that the sophistication of nature itself might be for all practical purposes, infinitely deep. We don't know how many sub, 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 subatomic particles there are. We don't know how many systems within systems within systems within systems are in biology. 
And when I was, well, when I first met you, we were at the Christian Scientific Society meeting. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. In Seattle. And so um, my book, Evolution 2.0, had just come out. And the organizers were somewhat simpatico with my book, but somewhat unsimpatico. Right. They invited me in. They're like, hey, you know, let's hear what this guy has to say. And so really most of the people in the room were card-carrying Discovery Institute intelligent design guys. And I said, and I was advocating natural genetic engineering and what we has become called the extended synthesis, uh, the Swiss Army knife toolbox of evolution 2.0. And I said to Casey Leskin, who was in the meeting, I said, back, back to this illustration here, I said, you guys are doing this. And I'm saying your strategy is never, ever going to work because the way you frame this argument, it's designed and you can never solve this in a naturalistic framework. Your position essentially takes a job away from a scientist. This picture, it's like, well, you'll, you'll never get to the design. It's, you know, it's like it's out there somewhere where in this picture, every mile you drive that car is another paper that a scientist can publish. And I said, you're going against the grain of the very scientific enterprise itself, the way that you position the sun in your picture. You position it as being infinitely far away that you can never get to it. And this picture is saying, well, you might be able to get there. You might not. But what we can say for certain is you can get closer and you can get closer and you can get closer. And the degree to which you can get closer doesn't appear to have an end point. I think that is a critical distinction. And I think that is the mistake that Behe makes. I don't know that he's making it intentionally, but he's not providing a path that the design hypothesis can take a scientist down. He's just saying, well, hey, you guys haven't explained this yet. You guys haven't explained this yet. And, okay, crucially, I really think he underestimates and neglects some of the finer points of the extended synthesis of symbiogenesis, of natural genetic engineering. I really don't think he gives those mechanisms enough airtime or enough credit. And, th and that's what I want to talk to you about today. So let me say one more thing. I'm a very well-known marketing consultant. If you Google me or get on Quora or any places like that, you'll see my name all over the place. And I see part of this as, as a marketing problem, as a very severe marketing problem, that the way Michael has written this book, is it, this is already a bestseller, okay? It's probably going to be the best-selling book of its kind this year. So congratulations. But everybody who buys it is basically going to be an ID person or creationist, and it's still not going to get taken seriously by the people who most need to take it seriously because he's still in this picture. And they'll never buy this picture. Like, I, I'm saying, the scientific community will never, ever buy this picture because it takes away their job. And so I'm not accusing Behe of trying to take away a scientist's job. But I just think he has a positioning problem. And if he positioned himself a little different, 
he would effectively challenge scientists to solve it in ways that are productive rather than making up stories, which is what some of these guys are doing. So, all right. So back to you, I think we can. Yeah, I I said that's uh, very interesting what you just pointed out. And I, I honestly, what brought me back to credibility to the design argument was Behe. And I think that's kind of one of the basis of our relationships. You know, there were comments made on, you know, have been made by the, some of the Discovery Institute guys about junk DNA, non-junk DNA, and then they made a prediction. Well, they didn't make any prediction. And it, if you go back, one of my conversations is videotaped with Behe. I don't know if you've seen that before. On YouTube, our, two of our conversations are videotaped. And we basically agreed on everything. I mean, it, it, the limitations of, well, I guess we almost agreed on everything. I think he takes common descent a little bit too seriously. Uh, we slightly disagree there, but on, on just the basic scientific ideas, we pretty much agree on everything. I think where this is, is you're saying the design's argument is limited. And I think that's yeah. the scope you said, where Evolution 2.0 is trying to chip at this enormous this enormous turtles all the way down phenomena called bi- biology. And yes. I, I think yes. you're right. And I think that's exactly what you uh, should be doing. And I think Behe's argument is truly a niche argument, you know, and I don't think he'd disagree with that. He, he knows it's limited, but I think it's also, I don't think it's an argument to be dismissed. I just don't think, I think it's a niche piece of science it is not all of science, which you're trying to def- define a bigger tent in order to do discovery with science. So what I would say is that my position here would be that Darwin has a place at the table. It, it just happens to be a much smaller place than people are claiming to it to be. And I think one thing that Behe's book does is it shows what Darwin's real place at the table is, that is showing genetic diversity to the species level and maybe a little bit to the genus level, but not beyond that. Beyond that, we don't have a good explanation. I think what Shapiro and and you are doing is talking about natural genetic engineering. I think that really so far as adaptive mechanisms, they're well beyond the Darwinian mechanisms. They're much more interesting than the Darwinian mechanisms, but at the end of the day, they're still adaptive mechanisms. And until you can show that they're innovative mechanisms, truly innovative mechanisms. I think Behe has a seat at the table here, even though it may be a smaller seat than you have at the table. So let's talk about innovative mechanisms because I I think that's where the productive conversation is to be had. So I want to talk about a a few things that uh, experiments that have been done that I think are big, big, big clues. So Lynn Margulis championed the theory of symbiogenesis, took her about 20 or 30 years to get it accepted, but it is accepted now. The weird twist of the story was the Russians already had it figured out, like thoroughly figured out by the 1920s, okay? And so it took until the 90s for Americans and people in the West to accept it. And man, that's pretty bad, you know, when... It takes 70 years for something that makes a ton of sense and has a great explanatory framework to get accepted, you know. 
it just shows you how entrenched Darwinian theory has been because symbiogenesis is a massive leaps theory, not a gradual theory. And now when I started, but it's, but it, but Perry, it's also just a partial explanation. Well, okay. So, all right. So let me, let me, let's, let's keep chewing on the bone here. So when I started writing evolution 2.0, all of the symbiogenesis information I found was anecdotal. Now it was very impressive. Okay. So if you go to the books in the 1920s, it's all based on physiology. They're like, look, okay, so you see that blue-green algae and you see that chloroplast inside the cell, do you notice they look exactly the same? Like, hello. Okay, so that was the argument in the, in the 1920s, okay? Then you get to the 1990s and now it's, hey, guess what? the genes are also almost identical or in some cases are identical. You can make a really persuasive case that these organisms shed some of their genes and some of their coding sequences. And then you had this and and I said, okay, but has anybody actually produced this in the lab? Well, it turned out yes, but hardly anybody was talking about it. So I dug and I dug and I found a reference to something and I couldn't get to it. Had my local library order me something, you know, and this paper shows up and it's by Quan Zhang from the University of Tennessee. And he actually did a symbiogenesis experiment and he put Proteus and X bacteria together and they fought like cats and dogs for 18 months. It was like a corporate acquisition. You ever been through one of those? Yeah, I've been through a couple of them, yeah. <laughs> okay. They all, they all, they fought like cats and dogs, and finally they started getting along. And at the end of 18 months, he had the X bacteria living inside the amoeba, and they had done a complete um, shedding of redundant functions. Okay. So an analogy would be we take a Starbucks and, and we put it inside a Marriott and we have to send in the construction crews and they hook up, you know, the water. It's like there's one water main coming into the building and the Starbucks uses that and, you know, there's an electrical panel and they hook that up together and, you know, we don't need two accounting departments. You know, it's kind of like that, okay? And so they... They reduced the redundant functions, and when he separated the two, they both died. And they they sequenced the genomes of these guys, and they found they had exchanged DNA, they had shed DNA, their whole genomes had changed to a degree, okay? And you effectively, for all practical purposes, had a new organism that never used to exist before. Okay, now, if you go to the larger symbiogenesis theory... Margulis and the Russians were saying, well, this is exactly how we got mitochondria. This is exactly how we got chloroplasts. And even though I'm not aware that somebody has created an entire brand new mitochondria merger or a brand new chloroplast algae merger, I think the evidence that that actually happened is quite persuasive. Okay. Now, What I want to point out is how incredibly sophisticated this is. 
Okay. And I want to point out that all of it is irreducibly complex, but the cells do it anyway. Okay. And this is the punchline that everybody seems to have missed. Okay. So I've got a chapter in evolution 2.0 about irreducible complexity. And I say, dude, I'm an engineer. Nobody knows about irreducible complexity better than me, right? Like, you know, that little children's toys, uh, the Simon says, and you pull the string and the little cow turns around and, you know, like my neighbor's three-year-old, the string broke. It's done, right? Like you, you have a Simon says or whatever that thing is with, no, with a broken string, you have a piece of junk, right? Like you can't do anything with it, okay? Well, most things are like that. And most things in biology are like that. So Michael is right about the flagellum. And then I, I went into the literature and I said, okay, so has anybody explained this? And, you know, so here's what I found, Bill. What I found was a bunch of papers that said, well, hey, that gene was already over here and that gene was already over here. So all the Legos are there. So be he's wrong. And I go, hey, wait a minute. You guys didn't explain this because you still didn't explain how the Legos got put together and what you really, and so, but here's like what really upset me. The creationists go, it's irreducibly complex. Therefore God did it. The Darwinists go, it's irreducibly complex, but all the Legos are there and chance, chance could do that. Chance could do that. Right. They never actually explain how it got done. Right. And, and I'm going, Hey, none of you guys are actually mentioning that the cells are capable of building these complex things and moving around a whole bunch of parts all at one time. So I, I would say, you know, the, again, I'm going to go back to my baseline on intelligent design is BE and not the Discovery Institute per se, it's BE. Okay. And so, what, so the argument is not God did it. The argument is evidence for design. Hard stuff. So okay. that's, that's what Behe's argument is, evidence for design. Now, he may say the designer's an interesting discussion and all that, but that's not the scientific statement of intelligence design. It's simply evidence of design or evidence of a mind, that a mind is behind, that the mind is ultimately behind this. Now, as far as what, where Behe would go on the idea of a eukaryotic cell like an amoeba acquiring a, a prokaryotic cell and mixing and matching DNA Michael would be fascinated by that, but he would then ask the question, where did the machinery for the amoeba come from? Where did the machinery from the prokaryotic cell come from? And so that's where the design argument is. And it's, it's, it's again, a niche argument. So what does Behe actually think? It's not clear to me. Yeah. And I might not have read closely enough, so may, help me out here, but it's not clear to me what he actually thinks happened. So does he believe in some kind of natural genetic engineering? Does he believe in common descent? Does he believe in macroevolution? Like I'm, I'm not entirely clear what he thinks. That's sort of by design, you know, he, he okay. not, uh, <laughs> to use a pun, he, he, um, okay. his arguments are, he is a he is a hardcore empiricist, right? He is looking at the evidence and making a conclusion based on the evidence. 
and he's making the conclusion he can based on the evidence. He's really not a speculator. You know, he would tell you that it's possible. In fact, in one of our conversations, he called, uh, he said there may be no mechanism. It may be just a very fancy pull shot that unveiled the universe and, and life came about. He's, he's, he doesn't discount that as a possibility. And then he doesn't discount some special creation as a possibility. You know, he's just down to observing the fact that we're seeing some stuff out there that there's clear design detection. Like, and it's the same thing you see. And you're trying to peel the envelope. He's not trying to peel the envelope as you are. So I think you guys both have very clear places at the table. And you're, you're, you're just going about it slightly differently. But I think your argument's very important. And I think Behe's argument's very important. So in Behe's book, uh, he says something very interesting. He says, if you want to start asking who the designer is, that is a much more complex question than my simple inference that there is one at some point. And I'm not going to get into that because that's 10 books or 100 books, not one. It's like, okay, yeah, all right. Uh, you, totally. you got it. That's exactly right. Okay, and, and, and um, well, in a sense, that's what I've done too. I've said, look, I'll, like, I'll go with the pool shot. Personally, I think that's the most elegant way of viewing it, okay? If we can reduce it down to one giant unknown event, instead of a whole series of who knows how many smaller unknown events, I think that's a lot more elegant. Right. Okay. It's a lot more parsimonious and it gives us more to discover. Right. So, and by the way, you know, people bring up a great question. Like there's a, a blogger in the Netherlands who, who brought this up. He said, you know, he's not, I don't think he's an atheist. Uh, and he, he has some kind of a spiritual bent. But he's pretty naturalistic when it comes to science. And he says, I just fail to see how this creator of whatever sort helps the situation at all. Because every time I press creationists or intelligent design people about, okay, so where exactly does this come in? They're always like really vague about it. And he goes, this is not helpful. Well, my response is, well, actually, I agree. But here, here's where it is helpful in the way in which it is helpful. So, so let's go back to my earth and sun and car, okay? So the sun is infinitely far away, all right? It might as well be farther than you could ever get to, okay? It's like that infinite point out there. But the earth is unimaginably large as well. And we can travel a lot further. Now, what that sun out there, here's what it is. Here's the role that it plays. It's our grounds for believing that the universe and science are orderly. Okay? Now, there's, there's kind of a proof that this works. And there's, there's, there's a proof in society that the opposite conclusion doesn't work. So, if you look at atheist arguments, like specifically atheist arguments, which are easy to find because they're all over the place. Well, 97% of your DNA is junk because the evolutionary process is so sloppy and inefficient, okay? Or, well, the reason that the universe appears to be so fine-tuned is there's actually a trillion, trillion universes, and we just live in the lucky one, okay? 
And that, well, argu- that argument's got to be a trillion, trillion, trillion universes. I mean, it's got to be enormous. Yeah, right. Exactly. Solve the I'm problem, like, problem. Okay, you're, you solving this with a trillion universes is the most unparsimonious, okay, thing ever. And not only that, implicit in it is that maybe we've already found the last vestige of order and then the next scientific discovery is going to just be a bunch of chaos, just like the junk DNA argument. Now, now the junk DNA argument has empirically turned out to be outrageously wrong, like ridiculously wrong. One, one One of the judges on my panel for the prize is George Church. And he's probably the leading rock star geneticist in the world today. He's been somehow involved in almost every breakthrough, including CRISPR. And he pointed out that the coding sequences in bacteria that program for CRISPR were considered to be junk DNA for decades. And they're not. Like biggest. Because they're repetitive sequences. Right. Because they're repetitive sequences. Yes. Whether CRISPR scares you to death or if you think it's the coolest thing, you know, since the discovery of DNA or both, that scientific discovery was lurking in the junk DNA all along. And the people that were advocating junk DNA, frankly, should be fired because they weren't doing their jobs. Okay. And that is the effect that an atheist view has on science that it's meaningless, it's nihilistic, there's no ultimate order, there's no ultimate structure, it's ugly, it's not elegant, it's inefficient. Well, my perspective is, for the most part, nature is incredibly efficient, nature is incredibly um, effective, nature is incredibly purposeful, and those are hypotheses that, that always seem to be rewarded. So, so that's my, like my infinite point out there, no, like yeah. at the end of the day, it's, it's all orderly, but we don't know how big and how powerful nature is. And I, I look, I think in taking the position Behe is taking, he avoids getting into a bunch of arguments that would divide Christians and religious people. Because people of a spiritual and religious bent can all agree on the general hypothesis that he is making. Well, not all of them, but quite a few, okay? Especially the evangelicals and, and, and Protestants. Okay, but the problem is, is he still alienates the scientific community. When I was talking to the, um, at the Christian Scientific Society, and I kind of got in Casey Luskin's face, and I said, listen, I said, People like uh, Shapiro and Margulis are making, they are fighting a battle that can be won. Like their approach is entirely scientific. It fits within a naturalistic framework. It's not a God of the gaps argument. In fact, Shapiro isn't saying anything about God. He doesn't go there. Okay. I said, they are fighting a battle they can win. I said, you are fighting a battle you will never, ever win because you're fighting the economic machine of science itself. How do I get a grant for saying it's designed? So that is my problem with Darwin devolves. 
I, I actually agree with 80 to 90% of what he says, but I think he leaves out important things. And I, I think in the short term, if he took a position like the one I take, in the short term, it would be a, a more difficult road to hoe. In the long term, it would actually get him much further. And, and this is the problem that I have with the Discovery Institute and everything is there's this unspecified number of God of the Gaps events. And I just, boy, I think it's a huge mistake. Yeah, I, I got it. And, and, and that's where I was with you four years ago. But let me, let me tell you where I think the design arguments has a, should have a seat at the table. And not okay. a replacement for 2.0, a replacement for Darwin, but simply a seat at the table. And I'll go back to the philosophies of Einstein and Isaac Newton, who came from, philosophically came from the orderly universe concept or design concept in science. That, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head that the reductionist approach has really derailed science. There's no question about it. And I think you, you're nail, you've nailed that on the head. So where the design argument's important, I think, is, and is it a scientific argument, is a philosophical argument? It's right on that edge. It teeters on that edge back and forth. That's part of the issue with it. But I think as we bring more evidence of design and that becomes front and center, it can be a vehicle to philosophically straighten out the, the whole idea or philosophy of science when people do a scientific approach. And let me tell you, I had a first experience with this, and it went back to the cancer research I did around vitamin D. My first objective was to show, you know, what, why is this runaway cell division happening in the first place? And, uh, and that got back to embryonic pathways that were being activated when there wasn't enough vitamin D. Vitamin D is really a hormone. It's not, it's a vitamin that gets converted to a hormone in the body and in the blood. And it, it acts very much like testosterone acts or estrogen acts. It's basically a key that turns on DNA. But anyway, so that was the first project I did. It took me about three years to convince him that it was right. Um, and now, now he, 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 uh, I, I successfully extended his theory. The, the second assignment I had was that, that he had epidemiological data that was showing higher levels of vitamin D was reducing metastasis risk. And so I'd done the first project and I'd learned the mechanism. How was the cell really controlling itself? It turned out it was controlling itself by degrading the proteins that were actually constantly turning on DNA during embryology. It would, it would activate a degradation mechanism that would break, continually break those proteins into amino acids because those proteins were its own feedback loop. It, it was a protein called beta-catenin. Beta-catenin would transcribe itself. That would create more beta-catenin, and that would continually goes on in the cell. And the only way to reduce that is to degrade beta-catenin. This appears to be a design mechanism, right? It looks like very much, as you would say, natural genetic engineering. This is a design mechanism. Well, I said, if, if the design theory is right, I'll find a similar mechanism in how angiogenesis was controlled, which is blood vessel creation, which is one of the beginnings of metastasis in the cell. And it turned out, yes, it was the same basic degradation mechanism that was controlling that also. 
And so, and that saved me a lot of time actually by mm. looking at it with a design concept. It's my one example, but I think as I look at uh, and have discussions with scientists all the time on the blogs, I see they're terribly misled when they observe nature and look at it from a reductionist standpoint. So that's where I think the design argument and books like Behe has real value it, so, to bringing so, that philosophy to the table. So try this on for size. What if we say that design and biology is fractal? Okay, so not everybody listening knows what fractal means, but fractal means pattern inside a pattern inside a pattern inside a pattern inside a pattern. So if you go to YouTube and type in fractal, like just hit enter and start looking, you'll see all kinds of great videos and you'll see um, computer generated fractals and you can zoom into them and you see the same pattern repeating over and over again. Trees are fractal. You have a, you know, like there's a tree in my front yard and it's, you know, you can see the big branching pattern, but I can zoom in, zoom in, zoom in to branches, twigs, leaves, veins in leaves, veins in veins in leaves down to the cellular level. And I will probably find literally the same branching pattern at 10 orders of magnitude every time you go in branches, 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 same, same with rivers, same with cracks in the sidewalk. Design is fractal. Okay, so there, yes, there is a ultimate grand design. There's an infinite point out there. It had to come from somewhere, okay? But at all these other levels, they are imitations of the same overall pattern. So when you say, well, I expect to see design at every level, I agree where I disagree with, so let me rewind a little bit and, and talk about my own journey a little bit. So I was raised a young earth creationist. Okay. You know, I remember this guy coming to our church and every night for a week and his name was John Whitcomb, a slightly famous guy and flood geology. And like, I was totally fascinated. The, you know, the only problem was, is I, eventually figured out, no, like the universe is pretty old and the earth is pretty old. And like all that started fraying at the edges. Right. But, but that's kind of, and then I'm an engineer and engineers very typically when they look at bio, they look at a hand, it looks very, very engineered, right? It looks like, yeah, I mean, it looks like somebody made an eye and it looks like somebody made an ear and, and all of that. And but then when I started discovering people like Barbara McClintock, Lynn Margulis, I found it's like, oh my goodness, no, like this kind of fractal pattern of design, this goes deeper, 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 deeper. And I actually don't think it's like God scooped dirt out of the ground and made an eye. Okay. Like that Genesis story, I take that as metaphorical or like non-specific. Okay. Like I think nature generates eyes through its own fractal intelligence, okay? And so I think that view of design is actually very productive, as you said, right? Like, it's usually productive to approach, like, from a practical standpoint, like solving diseases, solving cancer. It's usually productive to presume design. In fact, implicit 
lead people do, even if they're a hardcore Darwinist. And it's worth mentioning, there's this, for a long time, there's been this thing out there called the Salem Hypothesis. And the Salem Hypothesis says that people with backgrounds in electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, computer science, dentistry, and medicine, like medical doctors, tend to be more skeptical about Darwinian evolution than everybody else. Okay? Exactly. And it's a fact. Exactly. It's, okay, well, there's a reason. How do you make why. a circulatory system step by step, right? <laughs> right. And, like, doctors have a job to do, and engineers have a job to do, and computer programmers ha have a job to do. And so it's very productive to see de design. The only thing is, it, like, so here, here's another if I make another little digression, do you remember, Bill, there was a book that came out probably around 2004 or something called Privileged Planet by Guillermo Gonzalez? I've certainly heard of it, yes. So here's what's in this book, essentially. So he's an astronomer at Iowa State, and they get on an airplane and they go to India so they can take a bunch of measurements of a solar eclipse because there was a full eclipse in India. And he notices that the sun and the moon are exactly the same size in the sky. From, from our, yeah, from our perspective. From our point of view, okay? Yeah, yeah. And he says, if either one of them was a little bit different, there would be corona measurements of the sun that we can only make during a solar eclipse that we would never be able to make. And because of that interesting coincidence, there's all this stuff that we know about the universe that we wouldn't otherwise know. And then he starts pulling on that string and he's like, well, gee, we're in like the perfect galaxy on the perfect edge, perfect location within the galaxy to see the entire universe from earth. And then he explains how, because of that, it actually makes life even, like the universe even more fine-tuned for life on Earth. And he concludes that a universe that's been designed for maximum discoverability is curiously also optimum for life existing in the first place. Okay, so he publishes this book. It created a huge furor, made a bunch of people angry. Okay, but... I thought, well, I really like that idea that the universe is designed for maximum discoverability. And I said, so what if I run on that idea? And what if I pull the string a little harder? So I grew up young earth creationist. Then I get in my argument with my brother, which I've talked about in my book and, you know, people have heard. And I go down the evolution rabbit hole and if I sort of have my sophomore engineering hat on, I would look at the genetic code and everything else, and I would go, it's designed, like, in a very simplistic way. Like, intelligent design, therefore, like, God of the gaps argument, I get the best one. By the way, I have the best God of the gaps argument of anybody. I've got a $5 million prize with judges from Harvard, Oxford, and MIT, and I got invited to Arizona State to announce the prize by Paul Davies. Nobody's ever punched a hole in any of it, but I don't use it. Like I don't, I don't use it as God of the gaps. I say this may be solvable. 
and I got money for you. And like, it's real money. Like we spent a ton of money on securities exchange commission and, and legal work. And I've got real investors and they've got real money on the line. It's totally legit. Okay. Nobody's calling my bluff because there is no bluff. Furthermore, if somebody figures this out, it's going to be as big as the transistor and we want to patent it and it's for real, right? I'm not doing God of the gaps, but back to Guillermo Gonzalez, what led me to not do God in the gaps was, okay, if the universe is designed for maximum discoverability, then origin of life would therefore be solvable by the same logic that Guillermo Gonzalez used. I ought to advocate that origin of life is solvable, despite the fact that it's one of the most unsuccessful fields in science so far. Okay. Exactly. And so, so there's a lot of tension in the view that I take, but I think like projecting 500 years in the future, well, one of two things could happen. The evolution price could still not be one. And it could be like one of these 500 year math problems that nobody was ever able to solve, which is fine because it's always good to know what you don't know. Right. Or, Next year, somebody figures out how to get chemicals from code and, and like now all of a sudden we have like algae on a chip and we can embed it in all the phones and like Siri wakes up and artificial intelligence is propelled like a million miles forward and we figure out cancer and we figure out all this stuff. Like maybe that could happen. Like I don't know. Right. But I have to get, I think that's a legitimate, I think that's a very legitimate argument. On the other hand, I think I think the origin of life problem is, to me, the most devastating part of it is that all the chickens and the eggs need to show up simultaneously, and and yep. that's where you need DNA. You know, can DNA survive without error correction? Can a, can an organism survive without error correction? Probably not. So what we're really seeing is the breaking here of what we're seeing, and I think you and I agree on is that the simple to complex model doesn't work. And that's fundamental to Dawkins thinking and all the neo-Darwinian guys thinking. It, it's the simple, to, nothing here is simple. It's complex. It starts from complexity. And that's the real hard problem. To, that's the real hard problem to solve. Well, I, I agree. And, and as an electrical engineer and knowing everything, I mean, I've been designing things for 35 years of my life yeah. um, or more. I am completely convinced from all the evidence that I've seen that the life operates in a fundamentally top-down fashion, not bottom-up. That's right. Or to put an even finer point on it, it actually operates as mutually interdependent systems where there isn't even exactly a top but but that the whole thing is intelligent. And and this, by the way, this is the view of Dennis Noble. Now he's one of my other prize judges. Yeah. And he's a fellow of the Royal Society. He has a commander of the British Empire Medal from yeah. Queen Elizabeth. He's Absolute, a good thinker. He's a good thinker. A lot absolutely of impeccable yeah. scientist. And yeah. he's a strong dissenter from neo-Darwinism. Yes. And what he says in his book, Biological Relativity, is there is no privileged point of causation in biology. In other words, we used to think the earth was the center of the universe 
And we found out, well, actually, if you go deep into physics, there isn't even a center of the universe because it's this weird curved space curvature problem, okay? So you can't even think of it that way. And what he's saying is the selfish gene is like the same mistake. He goes, the gene is not the center of evolution. The gene is not the center of biology. The gene is just an organ in a very complex system. It's just one of... It's almost a trailing indicator, not a leading indicator, because the organism is actually editing the gene, right? And so, bottom up, no. Top down, that's a little more like it. Peer to peer and mutually intelligent, that's even more like the truth. And so, you know, I guess what you have to recognize is that, you know, most people don't even know how their refrigerator works, (laughs) okay? And so, how are, how, how are most people going to figure out how biology works? And so, you have these, like, ridiculously oversimplified stories that get told. Yes. And, man, you know, it just ain't so. The point would be, I think the Darwinian materialistic, that being out there, is why I see the design argument being so valuable right? It, it, this really needs to get broken for us to start making more progress. And then that's where I think it truly has a seat at an important seat at the table. And I think you have a very important seat at the table because you're looking at this uh, f- from a non-reductionist standpoint and trying to drill down. That's a, and so I, I think you have, you and Shapiro have, have, a very uh, important place in this whole discussion. But I think the design argument is, is, I think it's your friend, not your enemy. I think it's just limited, but it has a very important message, which is overall, when we're doing science, we're looking at a designed entity. We're not looking at a random accident. So I, I have a prediction to make about this book. So yeah. this is really new, isn't it? Like how long has this been out? Yeah, it's not, it, it, it was first, uh, sold to the public at the end of February. Okay. So, yeah, so like a month. Okay. We're a month into it. Yeah. All right. So I have a prediction. And I've read it twice, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, it's very well written. So even, even though I kind of disagree with a, the positioning that Behe takes with it, and I would have written it differently. My prediction is nobody's going to put out a truly substantive rebuttal of this book. Exactly. Okay. Yes. What you're going to see is you're going to see a few kind of troll kind of guys trash it. Have you seen the rebuttals? Have you seen the rebuttals? Only the ones on Amazon, which are kind of silly. Right. But if you go on to the discovery institutes uh, platform, you'll see that the first rebuttal was done by Joshua Swamidas uh, Nathan Lenz and Richard Lenski, Doctor Richard okay. Lenski, was one together of them. or separately? They all did it together, and really? initially, and then um, Lenski did his own series on it. And and you're exactly right. There was really very very little substance to it. And what what Lenski ends up doing is, if you if you ever notice, there, there's a lot of circular reasoning around neo Darwinism, right? Mm-hmm. And they tend to they tend to they start with some fairly clean arguments, but then they go into their circular reasoning. In other words, they'll say whale evolution is proof of this. Where no, first you have to establish that whale 
real evolution is really something that happened. And so, um, and so that's, you, you see the circular reasoning. So, so far your prediction's exactly right. There's no substantive rebuttal to the book at this point. Well, so, so you bring up Lenski, like, yeah. no, I think the, I think the legitimate rebuttal of the book is what I just said. Okay. But I think you're going to, well, a couple things. Neo-Darwinism is actually dead. And there, there's hardly anybody that's, who knows what they're doing that's still willing to defend it. Certainly practicing experimental scientists who do experiments aren't willing to defend it. And, and to right. that end, I had a conversation with Richard Linsky at a TEDx event in Chicago, I don't know, probably six or seven years ago. Yeah. We both happened to sit down at the same table during lunch. And I'm like, hey, I know who that guy is. Yeah. You know, he's the, he's the millions of generations of bacteria yeah, guy at, yeah. in Michigan, right? The so I started talking Experimental biologist, uh, evolutionary biologist experiment in the world, I think, is Lenski's experiment. And so I said, well, hi, Richard. You know, I introduced myself and I said, I dug up in some journal somewhere a debate between you and James Shapiro in the nineties. And you were saying all these bacterial mutations are random and Shapiro said, no, they're not. And I said, so like, what's your view on this now? And he goes, well, Shapiro ended up being right. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And we, we talked about that and he said, Oh yeah, you know, there are definite patterns to, you know, to how these restructurings happen or they're, they're not just. Yeah. And this is that. the tremendous value of your work is that, is that, I mean, at the end of the day where Mike might be wrong is that Finch peak variation may be genetic recombination. Yeah. You know, it may be it's a also, predictable process. It may not be random mutation. And it also involves hybridization, but that's like a whole nother. Yeah. Uh, so, so I said, I said, Richard, would you agree that the word randomness is frequently misused and abused by biologists. And he said, yes, I would agree with that. And now I have a comment about Linsky's experiment. It will never produce any significant large evolutionary events. And here's why. So this is my hypothesis. Okay. Uh, but it's based on, based on evolution 2.0. If you, uh, there, I, I remember reading a study that said if you put birds on an island and there's no natural predators, the birds will get weaker and sometimes they'll even eventually stop flying and they'll just walk around and lay eggs. Okay, but if there's like minks or, you know, whatever predators, rats, you know, the man like the competition is on. In my business experience, my technological experience is the only way you ever get large-scale innovations in anything is by bringing out outside influences. Now, what Linsky has in his lab is he's got a tank of all these single, basically single species of bacteria. All right? And they're feeding. Okay? They're not even under evolutionary pressure. Okay, other, th other than competing for, with each other for nutrients, okay, 
the only way you're going to get symbiogenesis or hybridization is if you bring other things in there and you have a competitive ecosystem and a, an ecosystem where things can collide. And, and so that's what Quan Jung did. He put the amoebas and the X bacteria together. It's like, okay, like you guys fight it out. And they did. And they eventually arrived at a truce. Okay. And so, Lenski's experiment is never going to demonstrate anything beyond microevolution, and it's probably already taught us most everything it's going to teach us. And you have to recognize that macroevolutionary events are outliers. They do not happen that often, okay? And they only happen in situations of extreme stress. So anyway, that's, that's my prediction about about the Lenski lab. And, you know, it's disappointing that most of the rebuttals never get to the bottom of the swamp and get to the real issues. They just go around and around and around in circles. And it, it's, it's very disappointing because, you know, just defending the, the same tired Darwinian doctrine, like it doesn't get us anywhere. So, I agree. <laughs> um, yes, I think so. I, 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 you know, I think uh, what what you've put down here, Perry, is very valuable. And I, I would say the only exception, and maybe you don't disagree anymore, is that the Behe type argument, given socially where we are, is an important argument to be surfaced. Well, and he, look, and, and 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 you you are trying to dig. You know, do we have the origin of genetic information right now? I think you and I would agree the only known solution today is a mind. Well, yeah. And look, let, let's say somebody figures out the evolution prize tomorrow. Right. Okay. So does that, does that in any way remove the ultimate question? Well, no, because no. if you stop and think about it, it's like, okay, so let's say there's a self-organizing principle in physics, or let's say there's some way that matter can produce consciousness. Well, now that just kicks the can further down the road, which I'm very happy to do because there will be huge yeah. discoveries in that. Yeah, we should be but trying it, to kick the can down the it, road. Right. But, but it will just raise three more questions. Like yeah. the, the pattern I've seen in science is every answer leads you to three more questions, like not one, like three, like right. there's an answer, but then it gets deeper. And then there's more answers, but then those go deeper and it never stops. And so I'm not the least bit worried about scientists ever not having a job. I'm not the least bit worried about ever running out of new discoveries, new technologies. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And sometimes I wonder, like, do people really understand that? Like, it's like they don't have faith that like there's always another discovery coming, which really mystifies me. Like, I mean, isn't that one of the most wonderful things about being a science geek? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, it, well it, it's been great. Just, it's been great. Just a conclusion, a couple things not mentioned yet is that I think what you, one thing I learned from you, you made the great analogy about that DNA and the protein manufacturing process was like a communication system. And yes. one of the basic philosophical 
philosophical or scientific observations is that any noise or any change to a communication system destroys that information. I think what we're seeing in Behe's book is the empirical evidence that you were right. <laughs> he's oh, it's confirmed. true. He's confirmed. And that was this, that's where you and I were very synergistic early. That's exactly what I saw. That's the, that's when I saw that these things were sequence dependent, I said, this dog doesn't hunt. There's no way, <laughs> there's no way that this random change argument has any basis in fact. So that's exactly how I got on the bandwagon. But I think, uh, I think what BE has done for us is, is to show us empirically what we, what you and I believe four years ago in this book. I think another person to be mentioned is Giuseppe Puccio, who's an Italian scientist, medical doctor who blogs on Uncommon Descent. And he's done a bunch of empirical work around the introduction of new information throughout evolutionary time. One of the things he discusses is the spliceosome, particularly uh, the central protein PRPF8, which is 2300 amino acids, which happens to have almost no homology back into the prokaryotic cells. And he talks about the ubi ubiquitin systems, the emergence of vertebrates. Anyway, after this, I'll send you uh, three of his articles uh, on, on, on common descent. I think it'd be very interesting for you to see. But he, he shows the evolutionary and in, the insurgence of new genetic information over time, which I think is really a, a, an interesting study once you start to uh, start to think about this from a design perspective versus just a reductionist perspective. Well, let's put all those links together and we'll, we'll put them in the YouTube and the blog posts and everything. And so people can go check things out to their heart's content. So yeah, you, you put together some stuff, I'll put together some stuff and hopefully everybody can just have a more informed conversation about all of this. That's great. Great conversation yeah. today. And uh, are you going to make it to the West Coast anytime soon? Um, that's a good question. If you're coming sometime, out close to this way, let me know and I'll fly and see you. Okay. Right, now, if you're going to Southern California, my kids live, two of my kids live in Southern California. So let me know and uh, we oh, can perfect. Get, I'll buy you dinner. <laughs> Great. Well, Bill, thanks for doing this. And uh, yeah, hopefully we did more light than heat today. Thank you. Okay. Take care, Barry. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. <laughs>